Welcome to our weekly podcast. We've got another one in our series of Allied Health Professionals Implementation. I'm Emma Scott, Senior Workplace Relations Consultant, and I've got Bree Marinio again, Workplace Relations Consultant. Welcome, Bree. Thanks, Emma. So I'm going to do the honours again of We Have a Clue. Can you describe what that is and try and guess the podcast clue? Okay. Um, so there's a picture of, I don't know, it looks like a vase or a goblet. Um, bit interesting. It's it's blue and brass. Looks really old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, it's a nice piece of, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. I have no idea what this could be in relation to. So no clue on the podcast? No, no, no. idea. Okay, well, I'll give you another clue. Is it's the first image that's come up when I have Googled unique antique? Um, grandfathering arrangements? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I'm going to have to uh, tell you what this one is. Okay. And really, the podcast, we're going to go through the relevant provisions under the Allied Health Professionals Agreement that are quite unique to okay. the Allied Health Professionals Agreement. Unique Sorry, antique. Yeah. Um, unique and antiques. yes, yeah, I know, I don't know if it's really good clue, but we got there in the end. Um, and also for members, if they want, it's on eBay for sale for around $20. That's good. So go go look up that unique antique. Um, so I guess, yeah, today we'll be discussing changes that have been made to the Allied Health Professionals Agreement that aren't common in other um, health sector enterprise agreements. So um, what's the first feature that's uh, a bit unique? So the first clause that we're going to go through is Clause 17, which is about types of employment. So that clause outlines the different employment categories that an employee might be employed under under this agreement. Mm -hmm. And so what was the first change made to the clause? So the first change was inserting a new subclause at 17.3, which outlines that the employer will give preference to ongoing forms of employment over casual and fixed term arrangements wherever possible. So what was the rationale behind uh, putting that clause in? So inserting such a statement just reinforces the party's preference for maintaining and promoting secure employment in the public health sector. And so the most significant changes um, in the clause appear from, I think, subclause 17.4 to 17.7. Can you outline what they are? Yeah, so the provisions that are really unique to this agreement um, have been inserted and they deal with when an employee holds more than one position at the same employer. So this was just to ensure entitlements are clear and consistent across the sector um, whenever these circumstances arise. So firstly, the subclauses deal with how the multiple roles um, are structured. So I've just got it up on screen. The employer will ensure that the EFT of all the positions combined is no more than one, um, which is pretty self-explanatory. An employee can't work more than full-time employment. Then the second point is that the employer shall not engage an employee in more than one position for the purpose of avoiding entitlements under the agreement. That's another self-explanatory statement. And then that the terms of Clause 47, which is hours of work, Clause 48, which is accrued days off, and Clause 52, which is overtime, will apply as though the multiple positions were one position. So an example of that is um, under the hours of work 
clause, shifts cannot be longer than eight hours or 10 hours by agreement. And where the employee's ordinary hours in more than one position add up to full-time hours, the employee will accrue and take ADOs as if the two positions were one instead of two part-time roles. And secondly, the subclause also deals with how certain entitlements under the agreement apply and um, to employees with multiple roles. Yeah, that's correct. The agreement provides that the positions will be considered one position for the purposes of, and on screen again, the accrual and access to leave under this agreement and the NES. So an example is if an employee holds two different roles, roles that are at different grades, say a grade two and a grade three, an employee will be paid for the hours of work on the day that they take their leave and at the rate that they would have been paid for those hours. So at the applicable grade two or um, the applicable grade three rate, for example. Um, the positions will be considered one for um, accident pay or meal allowances. So it's the combined hours in the positions which entitle an employee to the meal allowance rather than individual overtime hours in each role. Say um, an employee has to stay back and do a couple of hours of overtime in one role and then they have to do another couple of hours in the other role. It's the combined total um, that if that meets the threshold for an additional meal allowance, then that's paid. And then um, clause 34 and 35, which is the sole allowance and the higher quals allowance. And so then the next clause is clause 19. Um, so part-time employment, there's been a few changes there as well. Yeah, that's right. So the first change to the part-time clause was to clarify that the three-hour minimum engagement that applies to part-time employees is on a shift-by-shift -shift basis, um, as opposed to being engaged for a minimum of three hours per week. So that's um, ordinary shifts is a minimum of three hours. And the next change? So when establishing a part-time employee's pattern of work, um, a change has been made to the clause to clarify that the items in subclause 19.3a, which lists you know, the days of the week worked, the start and finish times, that they must be outlined in the future employee's letter of offer, which is provided before they commence employment. So that means that the clause closely, more closely aligns the modern award, but also the letter of offer clause um, and make sure employees basically are aware of what their work pattern is going to look like before they accept employment. Yeah, that's what's, right. the what's the next change? So a slight amendment was made to subclause 19.3c, which used to simply state that variations to the regular pattern of work will be recorded in writing. Now there's been a slight tweak that says um, any variations to the regular pattern of work must be by agreement between the employer and the employee and will be recorded in writing. So it's important to note that this doesn't exclude other clauses that apply, for example, the consultation process regarding changes to regular ordinary hours. And what's the final uh, change in that part-time clause? So like the Health and Allied Managers and Admin Agreement, a new subclause has been inserted at 19.5, which facilitates a process to review and vary a part-time employee's contract to permanently increase their contracted hours. However, there's some minor differences between the Allied Health Professionals and the Health and Allied Agreement. So what's the actual criteria that must be met for the um, employee's work pattern? So the employee or the employer is entitled to make a written request for an increase where the employee has regularly and systematically worked more than their contracted hours for a period of at least 26 weeks. 
Now, what's unique to the Allied Health Professionals Agreement is that such a request cannot be unreasonably refused by an employer, but under the Health and Allied Agreement, um, requests can't be unreasonably refused by either party, so that includes the employee. Mm -hmm. So are there any circumstances where an employee won't be considered to be regularly and systematically um, working more hours? So yes, there are. An employee will not be considered to be regularly and systematically rostered if the shifts the employee has been working are replacing an absent employee. So that includes parental leave, long service leave, workers' compensation or personal leave, um, or if they're replacing a temporary flexible work arrangement. And so that, and that's really because it, they're not really that person's hours on their someone else's hours. They belong to someone else. Yeah, that's right. And what are the procedural requirements um, around when such a request is made? So I've just got it on screen. Um, a written response must be provided within 21 days of the request. If an employee doesn't respond to a, a request in time, they're deemed to have declined the offer. But if the employer makes a request for an employee to increase their hours, and this is where the allied health professionals is different, they must also notify the employee of those above time limits for the response and then the consequences um, if the employee doesn't respond. And then if the employer refuses a request, they must include written reasons for the refusal in their response. And if the employee requests, they have to provide any evidence that they have relied upon. And then if the employer grants a request, they must provide the employee with a variation which reflects the hours worked on a regular and systematic basis. Uh, so can the employer and the employee also agree on an alternative uh, number of hours to be increased? Yeah, they can. So if the employee doesn't want to increase to the full amount that they've been working on a regular and systematic basis, for example, um, their 0.8 and the evidence provides that they've been working full-time for the past 20, 26 weeks, but the employee doesn't want to increase all the way to full-time, um, the employer and employee can agree on any other revised employment arrangements um, and set those out in the employee's variation. Yeah, and then that leads to the next amendment. Yeah, it does. So similar to varying an employee's pattern of hours, the language at subclause 19.4 has been amended to clarify that a part-time employee cannot be required to work additional ordinary hours except by agreement. Um, consistent with the status quo, if a part-time employee accepts an offer to work additional ordinary hours, these are paid at ordinary rates. Um, however, they can decline an offer of additional ordinary hours and be directed to work overtime. So the clause is just being tweaked a little to make that absolutely clear. Um, and so VARPA wanted to address a circumstance where there like, might be a dispute about whether someone actually agrees to them at, ordin at ordinary hours. And I think one example that we had raised was when additional shifts were added to a part-time employee's roster without any consultation. What's changed there? So where the there's a dispute about the employee's agreement um, in that scenario where they're just put on the roster or otherwise, um, if there's written evidence that the employee agreed to work the additional ordinary hours, then those hours are paid at ordinary rates. However, if there's no written evidence of agreement, then the additional hours must be paid at overtime rates. So what's some examples of um, the written evidence that would meet the requirements of the new provisions? So an employer doesn't have to provide a formal written letter to an employee um, every time they offer um, an additional shift. An email or a text or any type of electronic message will be sufficient. And we believe most employers are already complying with this requirement. Mm -hmm. And so the next clause that's unique is in clause 20, casual um, employment. Can you take us through those changes? 
course. So the first change is actually identical to what was made in the part-time clause, and that was to clarify that the three-hour minimum engagement applies on a shift-by-shift -shift basis rather than on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And then the next change? So the next change is a new subclause at 20.2, which outlines what occurs if an employee has been engaged as a casual but is not performing relieving work or work of a casual nature. Um, where this is requested by the casual employee, the employer will convert them to full-time or part-time, whichever is applicable. Mm -hmm. And so how is this clause actually different to the casual conversion process? So this clause is separate and distinct to the casual conversion process, which covers a circumstance where an employee is engaged as a casual, but over a period of time, their work becomes regular and systematic. So this subclause is intended to address a circumstance where an employee is purported to be engaged as a casual, but from the outset or at another point in time, um, the nature of their work doesn't meet the definition of casual employment under the agreement. So an example of that is if someone was incorrectly classified as a casual when they're actually working the hours um, which meet the definition of a part-time employee. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when someone actually converts to permanent employment in that circumstance? So the clause outlines, outlines in what circumstances the period of casual service will count as full-time or part-time service. So the list is on screen and that includes a transfer of business, termination of employment, calculating a severance payment upon redundancy, the rate of personal leave accrual, um, save that the employee is not required to credit the employee with leave, um, parental leave, long service leave and the eligibility to request flexible working arrangements. Uh, and then there were already some things in the allied health professionals, particularly the fixed term clause, which is actually quite unique um, to the AHP agreement. There was a change in there in relation to Peter Mac. Yeah, that's right. So the first change was to address um, funding arrangements that are in place for Peter Mac um, and to really reduce the administrative burden of needing to extend fixed term contracts on each occasion. Um, that they implement them. So for Peter Mac only, the initial limit has been extended to three years for a research project that's funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council, um, which is instead of two years for everybody else. And what's the second change that's been made in that clause? So there's an obligation on employers that's been inserted at subclause 22.15 and it outlines that graduate employees on fixed term contracts will be offered ongoing employment when they complete their graduate year where it's appropriate in all the circumstances and a suitable vacancy exists. Um, so I think most members would be aware that there's also some changes to their fixed term contracts under the Fair Work Act um, as a result of the Secure Jobs uh, Equal Pay Amendment. Uh, what we're going to do is look at those further and we'll detail anything in um, a bulletin um, at some point in time. Um, and so the other final clause in that this part one is higher duties I think we're going through. Yeah, that's right. So there have been a few changes made to really help incentivise the performance of higher duties. So these include clear wording that higher duties applies where a position is vacant, not just when the employee is absent. So this is to ensure payment of higher duties occurs even though there's no incumbent. For example, when an employee resigns or they're on a secondment arrangement. Um, the next point is an employee is entitled to have the higher duties allowance paid whilst they're on any period of leave if they will be required to assume the duties of the absent employee when they return to work from the leave and the employer doesn't have to pay another employee higher duties as a result of the absence. 
And then the third point is an employee engaged in performing higher duties is paid at a rate immediately above the rate of pay for the substantive position when engaged in performing higher duties, where the difference between the top of one grade, level or class, and the bottom of the next is minimal or the rate is actually lower in some circumstances. For that last change, how are employers to implement it? Well, employers don't have to manually figure out what to pay. Their agreement actually outlines the applicable classifications that are impacted and the rates that are required to be paid. So this table is contained at subclause 37.5a, and we included this clause to reduce any risk of disputation um, in interpretation. And there's another one I think we've introduced in there to reduce disputation as well. Yeah, that's correct. So a statement has been inserted at subclause 37.4, which says um, an employee may refuse to be engaged to perform higher duties. Cool. So um, thank you for taking me through those changes. I think it's quite informative. <laughs> thank you, Emma. We'll see you next time for part two. Looking forward to it. Thank you.